Welcome to Not A Christian Podcast. It's not a Christian podcast. It's a podcast that just happens to be Christian. In this podcast, we tell stories, we talk about life, faith, and pretty much anything else you can imagine. Now let's jump into it. Welcome back to the show. It's Not A Christian Podcast, episode 25, right here on Friday, April 2nd. Good Friday. So what's up, y'all? Thanks for listening to this on Good Friday, if you are, or maybe you're listening to it throughout the rest of Easter weekend. I don't know, maybe you're traveling. I uh, hope you guys can can listen to this show. I've got a long road trip. In fact, I'm recording this on Thursday afternoon, and right after I get done recording this, I'm taking a six-hour road trip to see my family. So I wish I had a great podcast to listen to, but I'm recording it as we speak. <laughs> So, but no, uh, so yeah, if you're, if you're taking a road trip, listen to not a Christian podcast. And if you're taking a road trip that lasts any longer than, I don't know, an hour, I actually made an Easter playlist and I posted it on social media. I think it was on Wednesday. So uh, if you want to just search my name, Kyle Krim on Spotify, you could probably find it. It's called Easter songs. Or if you want to go to my Instagram bio, uh, just click the, the link in my bio. And the first thing on the link tree is Easter playlist. And it's just a bunch of songs that I compiled that I think, uh, because like, I don't know, I try to find the words to describe like the beauty of Easter and I can never do it. And, and the thing is the details around like the crucifixion, the death and the resurrection as painted in the Bible, they're so lucid that I feel like I can't do it justice with my own words, if that makes sense. So I found some music that kind of paints that picture for us. So basically the, this playlist, it starts... Uh, like with the incarnation of Jesus and then it transitions to the the death of Jesus and what that meant and then there's songs about like the resurrection and then our response I don't know so I I ordered those songs purposefully so I hope as you listen to that playlist it's about an hour long uh, 14 songs I think I hope if, if you choose to listen to that playlist I hope it just you know there's there's some songs on there you might have heard before and there's some that you very well may not have heard they're not strictly like corporate worship songs. Just I just hope that it kind of takes you on a journey from, from the incarnation all the way to the ascension of Jesus and then into our response to Jesus and our eventual resurrection with Jesus. Uh, so yeah, just listen to that sometime this weekend if, if you have time and, 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 and want some good road trip tunes or just some, some background music to play. So just, just a quick tournament update. Uh, the the March Madness Worship Edition. We're down to the top two, y'all. Coming out of the hymn region as the four seed was "It Is Well with My Soul," a classic. It beat out greats like Amazing Grace and Come Now Fount to get all the way to the championship matchup, and it beat Lord I Need You out of the contemporary region. So the contemporary region is done. On the other side of the bracket, we had the sixteen seed. So will I a hundred billion times come out as the winner over there. And I did not expect that to happen. I think I might've seeded it wrong because apparently people like it a lot more than, than I thought, but that's okay. Uh, it's a Cinderella story. It beat out the one seed oceans. It beat out the two seed reckless love. It has been tearing through the bracket. And I think, I think there should be 
no, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to influence the outcome. I just, just vote for which song you think is better, and I will, sure, you know me, I will give you my opinion <laughs> after the voting has, has concluded. Uh, so, so yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, the, the, the race and the bracket challenge is, is super close, not only in the basketball one. I'm actually in second place now with a pretty good shot to win it. If Gonzaga goes all the way and wins the whole thing, then I think I'm going to win that. But the worship edition, it's a pretty, pretty fun race unfolding over there. Uh, I'm not going to give any, any standing updates because I want to announce that next week on the show, but I have made a decision. Actually, wait, 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 I'm just getting news in. So will I has contracted COVID. So it's going to actually be replaced by in Christ. No, I in Christ alone deserve to win that semifinal matchup. Uh, but you know, that's just my opinion. And, uh, you know, we saw in March madness this year, VCU got eliminated Virginia Commonwealth university just because of code COVID protocol. So I thought about incorporating that into the, the worship edition bracket, but I want to be faithful to the voting. And, and one more decision that I've made with the tournament is that I know I originally said that, well, so everybody that beats me is still going to get a sticker. Okay. That's true. And I originally said that the winner was going to get a not a Christian podcast t-shirt, but I've actually come across a prize that's even better than the not a Christian podcast t-shirt. I have purchased a limited edition of Lil Nas X's Satan shoes to give away to the winner of the not a Christian podcast March Madness Worship Edition Bracket Challenge. Not really. Uh, the winner's going to get a t-shirt, not a Christian podcast t-shirt, which is better than Satan Shoes, in my opinion, because right now there are two not a Christian podcast t-shirts in existence, and they belong to me. There are 666 pairs of Satan Shoes that are going to be released into this world. So you tell me which one's more of a collector's item, you know? And my t-shirts are going to be, when they do come for sale, heck of a lot cheaper than the Satan shoes. And if you're not caught up to the latest news, yep, the rapper Lil Nas X decided to release a limited edition pair of shoes uh, themed around Satan. So there's like a pentagram on there. Uh, There's like 60 cc's of red ink that are supposed to represent blood in this clear little reservoir on the bottom. And also in that reservoir is one drop of human blood per shoe or per pair of shoes. I don't know. But anyways, Christians are getting really bent out of shape about that lately. And the thing is, Lil Nas X gave us Old Town Road. And if there's anything we should be mad at Lil Nas X for, it's that. That atrocity of a song. Uh, And the Satan shoes, here's the thing. Here's the thing that, that bothers me. The only reason why Lil Nas X did this was to be edgy. And of course, when you do something like this, the Christians are going to react. The Christians are going to get outraged. And the thing is, it's free publicity for Lil Nas X. If nobody, if you would just stay calm, if we would just chill out when stuff like this happens, just don't react to it. It's like when they said you're growing up, if you have a bully, just ignore them. That's kind of what's going on here. If somebody does something stupid like that, just ignore it, okay? The, the overreactions are just bringing him more and more recognition where it's not merited. And that's why his Satan shoes are such a big hit is because people are overreacting to them. It's a cultural phenomenon, not just something that we've brushed over like we should have. But anyways, that's my little lecture for the day. Don't care that Lil Nas X, like why, why do we, why do we react so much when a non-Christian who obviously isn't following Jesus does something 
that indicates they are not following Jesus. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't get the outrage. I, I just, I'm just not a person that, that does the whole outrage thing very much. But anyway, that's what's going on. Easter's this weekend, obviously. And, and let me just tell you, for your pastor of your church, this is like his Super Bowl, right? This is the big sermon every year. They, your pastor has the biggest audience they're going to have all year. And this is like, you know, the, the resurrection is, Easter is, is the kingpin of Christian holidays, if you ask me. Christmas is bigger commercially, but Easter, I think, is the most important holiday for Christians, for our faith. Your pastor's Super Bowl, so so support your pastor this Sunday. Go to a church, you know, if 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 you feel safe doing that with in the world conditions, you know, go to church this Sunday. Support a local church. Uh, so yesterday, at the time of recording, I actually kind of got to preach like a little Easter sermon, and I've never gotten to do that before because I've never been like the pastor of a church, and of course the pastor of a church is going to be in his own pulpit on Easter. So I've had the opportunities to preach on Sunday mornings, but I've never preached Easter Sunday. So we have a college Bible study through my church here in Alpine. And, and I got to do a little Easter sermon last night and I loved doing it. I love Easter and hopefully that'll become apparent throughout the duration of this episode. Just to give you a little roadmap of where we're going. First, we're going to talk about a brief history of Easter, and then we're going to move into the meat of this episode, which is kind of a deep dive into the resurrection is why does why does the resurrection matter is there evidence for the resurrection how does the resurrection influence how we should live now and finally what does the resurrection prove so you don't want to miss any of it right here on the good friday edition of not a christian podcast let's go ahead and transition to the first segment As promised, here is a brief history of the Easter holiday. And unlike Christmas, Easter actually has its origins in the resurrection, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. As you may recall, two days before his death, Jesus calls the disciples together for a Passover feast, which celebrates the Jewish release from slavery. And it had always been a huge celebration for the Jews. So this happened two days after Passover. So originally, when early Christians celebrated Easter, they would do it just two days after Passover. And Passover could happen on any day of the week, therefore Easter could as well. So while we always know Easter to be on Sunday, that hasn't always been the case. So there was a time when Easter could have been on a Friday, or a Monday, or a Wednesday, or any other day of the week. Jews called Easter Pascha, which comes from the same word from which we get Passover. And like I said, it happened on various days of the week. However, in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea and the Emperor Constantine, like I talked about way back in the Christmas special, when, you know, if you, if you do remember, that's the council where Santa Claus got up and slapped Arius in the face. Go back and listen to that show if you haven't already. But this Council of Nicaea, under the direction of Emperor Constantine, ruled that Easter needs to happen on a Sunday because that was the day on which Jesus was resurrected. And you might be wondering, why does Easter always happen at different times? A lot of the times it's in April, but sometimes it's in March. 
Sometimes it happens earlier, sometimes it happens later. Well, I don't know why they decided this, but it might have had to do with, with the moon phase whenever Jesus was actually crucified and resurrected. But Easter now takes place on the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the spring equinox. So the spring equinox happens on March 21st. So basically, take the first full moon after March 21st, and then the Sunday after that is when Easter happens. So Easter can happen as early as March 22nd. It can happen as late as April 25th. And Christians early on began lighting the Pascha candle, the word that was derived from Passover. And of course, with most holidays, like we see, like we also saw with Christmas, a Christian celebration of a holiday brought in influences from all around the world, the pagan influences. The word Easter actually came from the word Estra, which was a goddess of spring and fertility. And around the time of Passover, because it was in the spring, sacrifices were made to her and offered around that same time. So the word Easter comes from the word Estra, the goddess of spring and fertility. And the reason why we use Easter eggs is because, is because they have also long been a sign of fertility, obviously, because if an animal is producing eggs, that means they're producing offspring. So eggs have been a sign of fertility. And then Christians began using them in the third century, because when the yolk would come out of the shell, the empty shell would represent the empty tomb. And we still color eggs to this day. However, originally uh, with the Christians, eggs were painted only red to represent the blood of Jesus. And you may also wonder where the Easter bunny comes from. Well, for the pagans back in the day, rabbits were a sign of fertility and new life. You may be familiar with uh, an expression uh, based around like how often rabbits uh, engage in certain activities and they have a lot of babies because of it. Well, that's why they were a sign of fertility and new life because they had a lot of babies. So that was a pagan sign of life, fertility, and hope. And that's why it got adopted into the Easter celebration and just kind of got wrapped up in there with the eggs as well. And in the 16th century, the Osterhaus, which was their version of the Easter bunny, would come and lay colorful eggs for the kids who behaved. So that's really, in all the research, those were the main points. Like we, we did a huge deep dive into Christmas and that took a long time, but Easter it's been fairly more straightforward and it's always been a Christian holiday and kind of throughout the years, these pagan influences came in. And what I'm going to say, I said this in the Halloween episode, the Christmas episode, it's okay to celebrate those, for instance, the Christmas tree. That was a pagan influence. It's okay to have a Christmas tree in your house. So if the kids in your family want to chase Easter eggs, uh, eat a lot of candy, take pictures with the Easter bunny, I think that is 100% okay as long as we're not celebrating those things we can celebrate easter but if we're making sacrifices to the goddess estra to to help us to be uh fertile and to give us new life then maybe there's some repentance that should take place but however dying eggs and chasing eggs on easter it's fine sure it's a pagan origin but now it's mostly just about having fun like I said earlier, Easter for its substance, for, for what it celebrates, is my favorite holiday, and I love all the aspects of it. I love the nostalgia of Easter. 
I remember, you know, waking up on Easter morning and we would have like this Easter gift basket our parents gave us. And then like we'd go to grandparents' houses and they'd be like, okay, y'all wait in this bedroom. We're going to close the window so you can't see the Easter bunny. And then they would tell us to come out and the Easter bunny had been there, like right outside our window. And, and I love the nostalgia of like Easter candy. Um, spring, as I've mentioned before, it's my favorite time of year. I always associate it with Easter, the resurrection, new life. Uh, just, just, just love the Easter season, and I love every aspect of it, whether that be the the Christian aspect of the death and resurrection of Jesus, or the the cultural aspect, the Easter bunny, the candy, love it all. So, so have a good Easter. But now we're going to go ahead and transition into the main segment of this episode, talking about the Christian side of it, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, and what it means. Let's go ahead and transition to the next segment. As mentioned in the intro, this episode is all about Easter, and in this segment, we're going to take a deep dive, kind of a deep dive, into the resurrection. And here's the thing, is that I originally had kind of a different idea about what this episode was going to be. I wanted to talk about atonement theories, which is a pretty boring sounding word, but There's a lot of depth in there and a lot of really interesting stuff we could learn about. But basically what atonement theories are is like how, so we we say things like Jesus died for your sins. But why does that make sense? Why does Jesus dying mean our sins are forgiven? How does Jesus dying atone or make up for or pay for our sins? And believe it or not, there's a lot of different theories out there with different emphases, emphasi, emphases, emphases, <laughs> and different aspects, such as God's wrath, God's love, etc. And I really wanted to make this episode about that, but something that became glaringly apparent to me really early on this week was the fact that I don't know nearly enough at this point. Atonement theories, I remember first learning about them in my intro to theology class in the summer of 2017, and and I thought it was an interesting topic, and I always said that one day I'm going to go back and, and kind of refine my beliefs, refine my views on this, but I recently kind of tried to start doing that, but as this as it happens with areas of theology and other areas as well, the more you learn or the more you look into a certain topic the more you realize you don't know or you've uncovered something where you realize, okay, I've got a lot more to learn than I thought. So it became obvious to me earlier this week that I wasn't going to have that ready in time and it it, it could be weeks or months because here's what I do. I have this really, I I don't want to say a one-track mind, but I've had things that I like to look into and really it's hard for me to balance things. So really I've been looking into eschatology lately uh, end times kind of stuff. And before I kind of finished that, I decided to dive into atonement and I dove in too deep because I'm kind of at a stage now where I feel like I know less than I did before. And, and what I mean by that is, is I like to use an analogy of like cleaning my room or cleaning my apartment now that I have, you know, a whole one. <laughs> I'm not just like a kid with a bedroom, but the way I have always cleaned, like when I clean my apartment, what I'll do is I'll grab everything that's out of place and I'll put it in one central location, like on a table or on the couch or whichever. So on the surface, I have to make a bigger mess of the room 
before I put everything in its place and make the room clean. And that's kind of how I think about theology a lot of times, because a lot of times I have things in my theology on certain topics that are not, I don't say unbiblical, but just like, I don't know where the basis of them came from. So I got to drag those out into the open. I got to drag things I've never heard before in the open. I have to drag things that I've heard and disagree with into the open so I can look at all of those things and consider all of them and put everything back into its proper place. So that's kind of the way I think about thinking theologically is that sometimes you got to make a mess of it before you can make sense of it. And that's kind of the stage I'm in right now with atonement. Like how does Jesus's death pay for our sins? How does the atonement work? So I'm trying to sort that out in my head. One day on the show, we'll talk about it, but not today because I don't know enough. And and the thing is, it's not really a discouraging thing because I know eventually it'll make more sense. Uh, and eventually I'll come to these realizations of like, wow, the hard work has been worth it. The, the long thinking has been totally, totally worth it. But regardless, it's been an awesome few weeks of reflecting on the season we're in for me. I love to reflect uh, you know, when the seasons come, when Christmas season comes about, and and I talked about this on the show that Christmas wasn't originally a Christian thing, but you can definitely use that to reflect on the birth of Christ. So I love doing that around Christmas time. But even more so, I love reflecting on the crucifixion and the resurrection in the weeks leading up to Easter. And one thing that's always kind of confused me, or not always confused me, but confused me earlier on in my Christian walk, I was like, why did Jesus die? Not why did Jesus have to die. That has to do with the atonement theories I was talking about. But in his own day, why on earth would people kill Jesus? Because a lot of people now, if you ask them, and I'm thinking maybe mostly people outside of Christian circles, you ask, who was Jesus? For instance, I've talked to Muslims before, and I'll ask them, what do you think about Jesus? And they'll say, oh, he was a very good man. He was a good teacher. He taught a, little, a lot of great things. I've talked to people who are agnostic and atheists, and they'll say, you know, yes, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He taught us to be kind. He taught us to love one another. He taught us to not be judgmental, etc., etc., etc. And the thing is, that's caricaturizing who Jesus was because it's not giving us the full picture. Because in any society, in any culture, those things would not be condemnable to death right? You wouldn't sentence someone to death for being kind and teaching people to love each other and for helping the poor and for saying we should help the widow and the orphan. So why in his day did some people hate Jesus enough to eventually kill him? Well, you see, there were these people in Jesus' day called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they were very, very religious. In fact, they did their very best to follow all the Old Testament laws. And they even had some rules that they made up on their own and said that if anybody else isn't following these rules, then they're not as good as us. And what Jesus did was he came along and basically said, hey, your rules and laws are worthless because what matters in your standing before God is your heart towards God. Do you truly love God? And the Pharisees did not love God. They did these things out of obligation and they did these things 
because they felt like they had to. And the thing is that people respected them for it. So when they made up all these rules and they followed all these Old Testament laws, Jesus came along and said, hey, none of that's worth anything. Well, all of a sudden, if that's true, then they don't have the power they once did. That means they're on the an equal playing field as the beggar who is paralyzed on a mat asking people for money. That means they're on the same playing field as a Samaritan woman who has had five different lovers. They don't want that. So they hate the things that Jesus is saying. So the reason that Jesus died in his own day was because he was a threat. He was a threat to the religious people. He was a threat to the political powers of his day, not because he was going to become a king, but because he was going to establish his own kingdom that said he was God and Caesar king was not God. And that's why the religious people hated Jesus. And that's why Rome hated Jesus. That's why Jesus died. And when we talk about the resurrection, the first question I think that kind of pops into our heads or maybe should pop into our head as we're relating it to the rest of the world is, does it really matter that Jesus resurrected? And if we remember last week, we talked about Gnosticism. And one of the main tenets of Gnosticism was an anthropological dualism. That big word I said you could use, you know, maybe at Easter dinner with your family and you could use that word and, and impress everybody. Or like I said, maybe make them never want to talk to you again. But this anthropological dualism was basically the idea that all things that are made of physical matter are bad, they're evil, and all things that are spiritual are good, and we can only achieve heaven or enlightenment or or unity with God when we attain this secret knowledge and escape our earthly bodies into heaven. So according to an early Gnostic, even the body of Jesus was bad, and that's why the Spirit of God, once again, according to a Gnostic, left the body of Jesus before he was crucified. And you may also remember that a lot of people who held Gnostic beliefs denied the resurrection altogether. If Jesus was truly worthy, he would not have resurrected back into an evil, broken world. God would not subject him to that because God knew the world was evil and that enlightenment could only be attained when Jesus escaped his physical body. So what happened to the body of Jesus, whether he was actually resurrected or not, it absolutely matters. And the reason why is because the Yahweh God that we believe in is the creator of all things. And I touched on this last week, but it merits some re-emphasis here. God created all things, and when he looked upon his creation, he saw that it was good. And when he created people, he saw that it was very good. God loves his creation and desires that his creation be redeemed. So matter is not innately evil. That is not saying that sin doesn't exist because it absolutely does. And it's not saying that sin didn't corrupt us and separate us from God because it absolutely did. And that also doesn't mean that we can do anything to earn our way to God and to earn our way to heaven, to earn our way to salvation, because we absolutely cannot do that. That kind of thinking, like we mentioned last week, helps us to reach or causes us to reach, I suppose would be a better terminology, a certain conclusion. That heaven is this far off spiritual realm in which we will one day live on as a spirit, free from the constraints of a physical body. And heaven in its final form will be this ethereal, disembodied place. And as I've mentioned before, I don't agree with that at all. I think heaven in its ultimate and final form after the return of Jesus is going 
to not be an ethereal place where we roam around as disembodied spirits, but it's going to be a physical place much like the earth we live on now, but without all the sin and corruption, and that in and of itself is unfathomable. It's impossible to imagine what this earth would look like without the constraints of sin and brokenness that we have brought into the world. However, that's what it's going to be. That's the picture that scripture paints. And you see, a lot of our thinking about heaven and about the resurrection, they come from 18th to 19th century theology that is quite honestly and simply just bad theology. For instance, there's this theological position called dispensationalism, and I say this knowing that some people listening to this might hold to dispensationalism, and I know people personally that hold to dispensationalism. But basically, one of the, the term dispensationalism comes from the word dispensation, meaning a dispensation of time, a certain unit of time. And basically, according to, dis to dispensationalism, there were seven units of time that we're in. I think we're now in like the second to last one the church age, or we might be in the in the fifth one, the church age, and the next one was going to be like the rapture, tribulation, the one after that is going to be like new heavens, new earth, whichever. But dispensationalism is where we get the idea of a rapture. This idea was not even really thought of that much until a man by the name of J.N. Darby popularized it. And that was, he was born in the year 1800. So for the first 1800 plus years of the church, there is very little evidence to support that there was an idea of a rapture that was going to happen that's similar to what we know now as the rapture. More importantly, the word rapture is not used in the Bible. It's derived from a Latin word called rapier. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and Revelation 21 are the main passages that people use to uphold rapture theology, but even a hasty, like rudimentary exegesis or study of those scriptures will likely lead you to believe that they don't have anything to do with God suddenly and mysteriously plucking believers out of this earth and into a far off heaven. Also, if you, if you look in scripture for this idea of heaven that's going to be purely spiritual, you're going to have a hard time finding it because it's, it's really just not there. Such things are embedded into our heads culturally not necessarily biblically. Think of a cartoon you would watch as a kid when someone, you know, die and go to heaven. They were sitting on a cloud in a white robe with a halo over their head playing a harp. But that depiction of heaven is nowhere in the Bible. And, and, and I mentioned this last week. What I believe is that God is going to remake heaven and remake earth physically. And that's where we're going to dwell with God for eternity. So you might ask the question, I asked the question of the rapture of this disembodied heaven, where is that in scripture? So you might ask, well, where is this new heaven and this new earth as a physical place in scripture? In 2 Peter 3.13, it says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21.1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 65.17 says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 66.22, For as the new heaven and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. So, so this idea of new heaven and new earth, we don't give it enough thought for the amount of time that that it the amount of times that it appears in the Bible. 
And but for me, kind of the linchpin as I was reading through the book of Romans a couple of months ago for devotional purposes, not necessarily for, for fine-tuning my, my academic theology, if you will, but the linchpin that I came across in this argument, the big reason that I think that, that heaven is going to be a physical place with rocks and trees and animals, and it's going to be right here on this earth when heaven comes down to earth and God's going to remake it. And let me just preface that by saying, I have no idea what that's going to look like. But I think God has kind of given us through scripture the picture of what that's going to be. And the linchpin in that for me comes from Romans 8, verses 20 through 24, and they read this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now this hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, and finally, verse 25, we'll tack that on. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So with that passage, I would encourage you to go back and read it in the light of what we're talking about. Creation is in futility because of human sinfulness. Creation, you know, whether it's an animal or, or a plant or the earth as a whole, is also in futility. Creation also suffers death. Creation is in futility, but scripture tells us that it's going to be set free from that futility. It doesn't say that God's going to snatch everybody away from earth, send them to either a, a far off heaven or a far off hell, and then just destroy the earth and everything of it. It says that creation is going to be redeemed along with humanity. And that is huge. That is huge for these things that we've been talking about earlier in this episode and the things we talked about last week. Because that's the hope that we're saved too, is that the earth will be redeemed. This scripture in Romans 8 says, we are also suffering as we wait for adoption and as we wait for the redemption of our bodies, not the doing away with of our bodies, but the redemption in the physical resurrection. Paul talks fairly extensively about the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15. He says it's incorruptible. It's animated by God's spirit so that this, this resurrection body cannot die. So Paul in Romans 8, he's saying, in this hope we are saved. Hope that is not yet seen Hope that will be in that resurrected body. Hope that will be in the redemption of our body. Not the doing away with of everything physical so we go to far off ethereal heaven, but that God's going to remake this earth brand new. And God shows his power in that. And I think whenever we are finally in that eternity, that new heaven, when heaven comes down to earth and creates it anew, it's going to be less of an example of hey, this is what happens when, when you stray away from God. But the planet Earth is going to be like this memorial of like, hey, our God can even redeem this. All that brokenness that once existed here has been done away with. The victory over that darkness has been won. So all this, all this seemingly rambling stuff of like, I thought we were going to talk about the resurrection. Okay, we're getting back to it. All of this is answering the question, does it matter that Jesus's body was physically resurrected? Because some people, 
including some progressive Christians. And when I say Christians, I'm doing air quotes because some people who will claim to be a church or a Christian will say like, oh, it doesn't really matter that Jesus physically resurrected. Um, and I don't see how that is reconcilable with any kind of Christian faith to say that the, the resurrection was purely spiritual. Some groups, including those people and including people outside of Christianity, will say that his, his body doesn't matter. But the, the thing is, it does matter. What happened to Jesus' body? The Christian faith rises and falls. It hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, we of all people are to be most pitied. God raised Jesus from the dead physically because that's what he promised to do with us. And I hope you see how that ties back to what I just talked about. About if God raised Jesus from the dead physically, he did that as a precursor of what he's going to do with us, as a precursor to the promise that he made us. God will raise us physically because he raised Jesus physically. He will make us like Christ. He will bring us into unity with Christ. Because if if all God wanted to do was spiritually resurrect us, then it would have sufficed to only raise Jesus spiritually. To leave his body in the tomb, the body doesn't matter. All that matters is that Jesus' spirit goes to heaven to be with God. But he didn't. He raised Jesus physically, and we can expect him to do the same for us. That's why the resurrection is so important. It was a foreshadowing of what he was going to do with us. The body, the physical body of Jesus matters absolutely. It wasn't a one-off miracle that can be explained and still hold Christianity intact. The physical resurrection of Jesus is a precursor and a foreshadowing to our physical resurrection. The truth of the resurrection is the hinge upon which the Christian faith depends. And that brings us to a question. If the resurrection is so important, is there evidence for the resurrection? And we have to look at the first century because that's when the scriptures were written. So if something meant different to them than it means to us, then yeah, we would have to say, Maybe the, the resurrection is just spiritual, if that's what they were talking about back then. However, deep studies by Greek scholars, of which I am not, I took one year of Greek in, in seminary, and I don't really remember that much of it. But resurrection in the first century, as it was used in biblical Greek, meant people who were physically dead, who became physically alive. It did not mean a spiritual resurrection. Or a movement. It meant someone who was physically dead became physically alive. Not someone who was physically dead spiritually rising up into a place like heaven. Why? And the first century is important because that's when the Bible was written or the, the New Testament was written. And it's if it meant something different to them, then it would have to mean something different to us. But the thing is, resurrection had a very clear meaning in the first century Greek. Also, in pagan beliefs, ancient pagan beliefs, which were common in the first century, resurrection was known to them basically as something that did not happen. It was an impossibility. There was no such thing as resurrection. So there will be many people who will accuse Christianity of borrowing Jesus from these pagan sources or, from, or adopting a variety of pagan beliefs and kind of compiling them all into Jesus. However, like I said, that, that idea of resurrection was more of a Jewish idea than it was a pagan idea. And why is that important? Is because obviously Christianity was inherited from Judaism, right? The, the gods that the Jews 
BC worshipped is the same God that brought about the incarnation of himself through Jesus. One of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, says this. He says, Resurrection is not a fancy word for life after death. It denotes life after life after death. There is nothing like this in paganism. So the idea of resurrection could only be found in Judaism. Some people may say that, that the resurrection in Scripture was adopted by the pagan idea of resurrection instead of a Jewish one. However, when we look at these things, we can see that the Christian hope of resurrection is more aligned with Jewish thought than it is with pagan thought. Because the Jewish thought also carried this idea of this one day the, the earth was going to be newly remade by God. And one of the sources I read on this says, if you take away the birth narratives of Jesus, you lose four chapters of the Bible because they aren't really talked about in the rest of the New Testament letters. However, if you take away the resurrection from the four gospel accounts, you take away the entire rest of the New Testament. It doesn't exist. So in the Jewish world, it's also important to note that no Jew expected the Messiah to die. Because when the Old Testament prophesied about this Savior that would one day come and, and rescue God's people, they had this idea that he was going to be a king, a political king. So no one expected him to die before he could make that happen. So because no one expected the Messiah to die, naturally nobody expected the Messiah would rise from the dead. That's why it caught everybody off guard was because without, with no death, there is no rising from the dead. And if the writers of the Gospels and Paul, who wrote a large portion of the rest of the New Testament, were going to create this story of resurrection, they would not have chosen Jesus because Jesus was not a political ruler. He didn't promise to bring about deliverance to the Jews through political power because a dead man cannot be a king in a political sense. And the point I'm trying to make with that is that if the Gospel writers and the New Testament writers were going to choose somebody to, to fabricate this story about this person's life and make them their Messiah, their deliverer, they would not have chosen Jesus because he wasn't a king. And the old Jewish thought thought that that's who their Messiah was going to be. So with these gospel writers and these biblical authors deeply rooted in Jewish culture, they would have made up a different story. They would not have created their savior as one who would die. They would, not, would, they would not have allowed for God to be killed if they were simply going to make up a story. But the, the events they saw at the resurrection and after the resurrection were what sold them on that Jesus truly was the Messiah. Another piece of evidence for the resurrection is that the women were primary witnesses. They were the ones who went and discovered Jesus' body. And at that time, I'm not saying this is true now, but at that time, women were not regarded as trustworthy or credible witnesses. And once again, if the gospel writers were to make up this story, they would have inserted men into the story. Men are the ones whose, whose testimony that could be trusted. So maybe Peter goes back or any of the rest of the disciples go to the tomb and discover Jesus is not there. However, it's women that go and discover. So once again, if the biblical authors were going to make something up, they wouldn't have made up the fact that it was women that discovered the resurrection and it was women that first preached the resurrection. And another point about is there evidence for the resurrection is that the empty tomb doesn't prove anything unless it's accompanied by risen Jesus. Because in one of the gospel accounts, when Mary sees 
the empty tomb, she says, somebody stole the body of Jesus. So just because Jesus' body is gone doesn't mean he resurrected from the dead. In fact, if I go to a funeral and they open up the casket and the body's gone, the last thing I suspect is that this person rose from the dead and is walking around somewhere. I assume someone stole him, someone lost him. A variety of things could have happened before I would say that person rose from the dead. So you have to remember the disciples, whenever Jesus was arrested, they all scattered. They ran away. They wanted nothing to do with this process of crucifixion because if they were found guilty to be following Jesus, they likely would have joined him on the cross. And they didn't want that. However, something had to have happened in just those few days from Jesus' death to the time he ascended to heaven. Something had to have happened in the lives of those disciples. Because when one minute they were running away from fear of death, in the next moment in the book of Acts, we see their redemption. As they boldly speak the gospel, we see Pentecost, where they preach the gospel to many people. And in Acts chapter 4, when, when the rulers say, you guys need to stop preaching, and they answer like, we cannot stop preaching what we have known and what we have seen. So do what you will. Something had to have happened to embolden these believers to embolden the disciples to one day be running away and they just went back to their old jobs of fishing to just a little while later, just weeks later, they were out preaching the gospel, facing down rulers and authorities and staring in the face of death. In fact, of the 11 remaining disciples, because Judas was no longer there, they did replace him. So of the 12 remaining disciples, all but one, all but John, faced according to history and tradition, died a martyr's death, died for their faith, died for the gospel they were preaching. So something had to have happened for them to make that radical turn. Another quote from N.T. Wright, my boy, says, we cannot use a supposedly objective historical epistemology. And basically what that means is that we can't, we can't just use these pieces of evidence as the ultimate ground for the truth of Easter. Because the ultimate ground for the truth of Easter, he says to do so would be like one who lit a candle to see whether the sun had risen. So the point of Easter, the point of a resurrection, of the resurrection, I should say, is to give us new life. And if we want to go back to these arguments and say, because of this, this, and this, I believe that Jesus is alive, I think that's great. However, the full meaning of the resurrection only happens when we live for Jesus. So why does this matter to us now? Why does the resurrection matter to us so much? And I'm going to quote N.T. Wright one more time because I think he has a lot of great stuff to say on this, but after that, I'm going to cut myself off. That's three times in the episode. But he says, the resurrection of Jesus says this, new creation has begun and you have been invited to not only be a beneficiary of that, but to be an agent of it. So Jesus gives us resurrection. He gives us new life while we're here on this earth. He gives us hope of future resurrection while we're here on this earth, that one day we will be in eternity with him. But that's not it. We are an agent of new creation. Because new creation has begun, it was inaugurated at Jesus' resurrection, we're invited to be a part of that. Christianity isn't about just following rules. If you're a part of the new creation— you're going to, to look like it. Your life's going to reflect it. And that's why the rules and guidelines exist. We're to do works of justice. We're to do works of mercy. 
We above all people are to be people who seek after justice and who seek after mercy and who seek after the well-being of others. We want to pray like Jesus did to bring heaven to earth. See, heaven is important, but it's not the be-all, end-all. Christians in the New Testament, and, and, and here's the thing. I have no, it's really easy for people to make bold claims about the end times and about heaven is because we're not going to be around to see them proved right or wrong. And if we are, it's not going to matter at that point. So I can confident, if there's anything I can confidently say, it's that I, I don't know how this is going to fold out exactly. But all those who have died now, uh, who have been in Christ, I think they're now alive in Christ. I think they're somehow in his presence. And that might be of spiritual existence. However, at Jesus' second coming, all those who, in, who are in Christ will rise physically. So what's the intermediary state about? The, the state between the time we die and the time Jesus comes back, if we're not alive for Jesus is coming back. I don't know that exactly. But I also wonder, what's the point of all the talk in the Bible about justice and mercy if our only goal is just to escape to heaven? If anything, the resurrection gives us an increased purpose. New creation isn't this faraway, disembodied, someday it'll happen type of reality. It's a reality that Jesus brought about at his incarnation and will bring to completion at his second coming. But we're living in it now. And the, the, the best thing about the resurrection to me is that it shows that the crucifixion was meant as a victory and not a defeat. Because Jews in that day... They had waited for their Messiah for a long time. Their Savior would come and deliver them. However, like we mentioned earlier, they thought that that Messiah would be a conquering king. So Jesus looked nothing like what they expected. He came as a peacemaker, not a conqueror. He came as a carpenter, not a politician. And he came as a servant, not a king, to be served. And they sure didn't expect their Messiah to die before he would take the throne. That's why the crucifixion meant sure death, is because his followers watched him die. And back in that day, the, the cross wasn't this glorious symbol like it is now. It wasn't this glorious symbol of conquering death and of eternal life. It was a symbol of fear because the cross was a torturous death that was reserved only for the worst of the worst. The worst criminals got death on a cross. So when we wear a cross necklace or a cross t-shirt or have the cross tattooed on our bodies, if people in Jesus' time saw that, it would be like us seeing somebody with an electric chair on their shirt or a lethal injection necklace around their neck. It just wouldn't make sense. Why is that a glorious thing? And I invite you for a moment to take yourself out of this hindsight view. Imagine that you're one of the people that followed Jesus and loved Jesus and thought he was going to be your savior and all of a sudden he's dead in the most torturous, humiliating way possible. When the women go to the tomb in the Luke 24 account, they went fully expecting to see a dead man. The mangled body of another failed Messiah because these things had happened before. There were these messianic figures, but ultimately they died and stayed dead. But they were instead, these women were instead met with angels who said they need not keep searching for the living among the dead. 
and that made no sense to them because death was on their mind. It was Sunday, and on Friday, they watched as Jesus was beaten with a whip that tore bone-deep holes in his flesh. They watched him agonizingly carry his cross to the site where he would be hung on it as the life was draining out of him. They watched the nails being driven through his hands and his feet, and they watched as the cross was erected with Jesus attached to it with said nails. They watched as he hung there, slowly bleeding to death in agony, and they watched as the guards pierced his side with a spear. They listened to Jesus as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They listened as he proclaimed to Telestai, It is finished. They saw him give up his spirit, bow his head, breathe his last breath, and they watched their Lord die. Death was the only possibility at that point. People don't survive crucifixion. So imagine you're in their position. You don't know the end of the story yet. And imagine being confronted with the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? And it reorients everything. It changes everything. Because they're not looking for the living in their own minds. They're looking for a dead man in a place where a dead man belongs. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Is a question I've been asking a lot lately toward myself. Because it reorients the women's thoughts from death to life. It says all of a sudden they're looking for, for the living Messiah. Because they say, remember what Jesus told you? Remember his words? And all of a sudden it says the women remember his words. That he was not going to stay dead. That he was going to rise again. He was going to ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of God. And he was going to prepare a place there with us. And when he said to Telestai, it is finished. The reason why Jesus ascended to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God is not because he's just chilling in a spiritual place. But because he said to Telestai, it is finished because his work was done. He did everything that was necessary for salvation and his reward is, is eternal glory. And one day when God remakes the heavens and the earth, those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus will be gathered around that throne, bowing down, falling down on our faces, worshiping Jesus, not as the servant he came as on earth, but worshiping him for the King and the Messiah and the Lord that he is. So the resurrection shows that the crucifixion actually was a victory, not a defeat. Because on the cross, your sin and my sin was placed on Jesus. And because of that, we are free from it. We're free from the consequences. We're free from the ramifications of that sin. Jesus took that upon himself. And that changes everything. We don't have to look for, for, for life where life is not meant to be found. We don't have to look for purpose and meaning in things of this world where it's not meant to be found, things that will eventually pass away and die. We find meaning in the resurrection and in the hope that we too may one day be resurrected. That's all I've got for you on this show. That's a wrap and that's a frat snap. Next time I promise I'll do just a little bit better later. <laughs>